So with that being said, I'm going to jump into my sermon here and I'm going to make a few preliminary remarks by way of that. I'll talk a little bit about the uh, Supreme Court decision that we had this week in, in our state. Um, but my sermon this morning is going to be uh, entitled The Duty of Christian Men to Prepare for Physical Conflict. Okay, The Duty of Christian Men to Prepare for Physical Conflict. And so this is a heavy topic. This is a serious, sobering topic. But it is one that I think needs to be talked about and needs to be discussed. And, and, and I think pastors all across this country need to be talking about the importance of, uh, of Christian men being ready, being prepared for physical conflict. Because physical conflict is something that is being seen and has been seen throughout our world, throughout our history. And Christian men have been called upon to act and to fight. And so I want to open us up with a word of Scripture from the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have your Bibles, go to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter number three. Ecclesiastes chapter three, this is King Solomon. Fascinating book, very interesting book to study. And uh, in the beginning of chapter three of the book of Ecclesiastes, comes right after Proverbs, he says, Solomon says this, he says, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. God, I just pray that you would speak through me. I thank you for what you're doing in the lives of your people. And even in the midst of this lockdown and things that we've seen going on in the nation, Father, I pray that you and, and know that you are using it for good in the lives of many to awaken your people, Father. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you would continue to stir the hearts of your people across this nation, God. And may we see revival come to our country, and not just to our country, but beyond, Lord, to to, to the nations. And uh, Father, I just pray that you would use this sermon, Lord, to stir the hearts of your people for good. And may you speak, Father, and may you equip us, I pray, for the important things you've called us to do as Christian men and women. And so I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this may be, <clears throat> I may break this into two or three part series. I don't know. I got a lot to cover, so buckle up and uh, have your thinking cap on, as they used to say in school, right? Get your thinking cap on. We're going to cover a lot of ground. But um, before I jump in, I want to make some preliminary remarks <laughs> as a lead in uh, about what we saw this week. We had a state Supreme Court decision that struck down uh, our governor's stay at home order, safer at home order. And so many of us have rejoiced and been celebrating this week as what we've been saying for two months, that we are living under tyrannical orders. We've been saying this. We've been preaching this. We've been proclaiming this, that what our governor is doing and what governors are doing in many states is unconstitutional, lawless and tyrannical. And sadly, as we've often pointed out, so many Christians, so many pastors, so many leaders are going along with it, have been silent about it. And so Matt gave a fantastic sermon last week that has been shared far and wide that rebuked 
the religious leaders in our in our country for aiding and abetting, for going along with, for being silent in the face of such tyranny. And now our state Supreme Court has agreed with us, has said, yes, these actions were unconstitutional, lawless. And even the Republicans who sought a, uh, a halfway ground asked for a six-day stay on the order and wanted to renegotiate with Governor Evers and adopt maybe a, a modified plan. The courts struck that down. Said, no, you can't do that. You've been trampling the rights of the citizens in the state, and it needs to stop. It needs to stop immediately. And so we thank God for that. And we hope that that will be done in states across this country. Many states are experiencing far worse than what we are. Other states never locked down. Other states have, have done none of these sort of mitigation efforts. And of course, they're not seeing any kind of massive health crisis. And so we've been speaking a lot on this topic, we've been addressing this topic. At length, and we're going to speak a little bit more about that topic and bring it bring it uh, to this issue today. Although I'm going to speak, as I said, the, the title of the sermon, The Duty of Christian Men to Prepare for Physical Conflict, is not just about this particular situation that we're dealing with. It's not just about the things we're seeing today. Uh, I want to, it to be a more broadly focused sermon because Christian men need to be prepared to deal with physical conflict on all kinds of levels, from something as simple as you might be driving home and see somebody breaking into your neighbor's home. Or you might come home and find somebody in your own home assaulting your family. Or you might be driving down the street and see uh, somebody being jumped or physically attacked. Are you prepared? Are you capable? Are you competent? Have you been prepared to handle situations where there is real evil? Real evil people doing real evil things that demands an immediate response. And so we must be prepared. We must prepare ourselves as Christian men because as men, this duty falls on us to be protectors. And so I'm going to um, lay out and give an introduction where I'm going to expound on these points a little bit and give a challenge and a call and lay out our arguments. And then I'm going to also follow it up with some tempering remarks because these remarks need to be tempered. We're going to look at what Scripture says about the importance of, um, of us being willing to endure and be long-suffering in the face of hostility. And then I also want to give uh, a response to some counter arguments. There are people that are going to listen to this sermon and say, this is absurd. This is foolish. This is outrageous. I've seen several things written by numerous pastors and Christian leaders responding to what Matt wrote last week that have been sent to Matt and I. And uh, and so the arguments are much the same and there will be counter arguments to what I'm going to present here today. And so I wanted to preempt some of that. and I'm going to give a few counter arguments. We'll look at a few verses of scripture that are used uh, against what I'm going to set forth today, what I believe is, is the Christian teaching. And so I want to, to give some rebuttal to that. And then I will conclude with some hopefully encouraging and practical words for us about how we can and should be preparing. Amen? So let's run through it. Um, I will say this. At Mercy Seat Church, we value expository preaching. Uh I preach, I preach once a month or so, and so I generally do more topical sermons. I have gone through books, but we do ex preach expositorily. Matt has gone through, uh, I think, over 30 books, verse by verse, in the years that Mercy Seat has been in existence. Right now, Matt is going verse by verse through the book of Acts, and I have preached multiple sermons to complement his sermons in the book of Acts. <coughs> and uh, we believe in expository preaching. I think it is important for Christians to go, for pastors to go verse by verse through Scripture and deal with the full gamut, the full spectrum 
of, of uh, the full counsel of God's word. So last month I spoke on the subject of not being afraid, examining the biblical statements, calling believers to fear not. As we see much irrational fear and fear being hyped up by the media in our country today. So I, uh, two days before this ruling, the city of Cedarburg here, we've been pushing for my town, Grafton, and the city of Cedarburg, Cedarburg next door to reopen businesses. And uh, Cedarburg had a council meeting, and I was it was a virtual council meeting, so I was able to be on like this, a live stream, and listen to the discussions, and, and I chimed in, was able to make some comments. And uh, they passed five to one prior to the Supreme Court decision, two days before they passed, a soft reopening, and uh, I was encouraging. It wasn't as strong of an act of defiance as I would have liked to have seen, but it was interesting to hear some of the dissenting voices. One woman who voted against it, the only one that voted against it, you know, was very concerned about the safety of the community, and she even acknowledged that there's probably not really a real safety concerns per se, but but there's a perception of safety, and we have to. It's important that people feel safe, and they, they have a responsibility to make sure people feel safe. And so, of course, I responded by saying, uh, you don't have a responsibility to affirm people in their irrational fears. That's not the role of government, to provide people with comfort in the midst of irrational fears. <laughs> what they actually have a job to do, though, is to protect the constitutional rights of their citizens. And we ought to be afraid. We ought to be concerned when they fail, when they don't display the courage, the competence and the leadership to properly protect and defend the rights of their citizens. And so I said, that's the fear that I'd like to see you allay for me. I'd like to see you give me confidence and comfort that we know that if, say, two months from now, there's another spike in numbers in, say, Milwaukee or something like that, and the governor, with the help of the legislator, locks down our state again, even though here in Ozaukee County, let's say there's been no spike in numbers, uh, are they going to disallow our businesses to be shut down? Are they going to allow our constitutional rights to be trampled? Are they going to impose and mandate uh, vaccines on our community? And so I'd like to get assurance from our city leaders, from our town leaders, from our government leaders, that they are going to stand up and protect and defend the rights of their citizens, even if that means defying a governor or a legislature. So that's the kind of courage and leadership that we need in this time. And that kind of courage and leadership means that we must be willing to, if it comes to it, fight. Understand that. That is the end of that road. And this is why so many men, including so many pastors, will refuse at this time to speak out because they are not willing to follow their principles to their logical conclusions. They are not willing to lay their lives down and fight, to put their neck on the line in defending the freedoms and the rights of other people. And so we see a, gro a gross silence about us. And so I want to unmask some of the cowardice today. I want to challenge pastors. And I want to challenge some of the religious leaders in our community and the political leaders in our community to man up. The bottom line is my rights don't end where your fears begin. That is a horrific way to legislate. So I applaud the Supreme Court decision, and I would encourage you all to read the Wisconsin State Supreme Court decision. Many very good things were said. Very strong statements were made that I applaud. So let's jump into some scripture. 
let's jump into what into what uh, our duty is. I have a few things I could say that, about this COVID stuff, but a lot has already been said. And um, I'm thankful that that it's it's waking people up. I'm thankful that this is a time where we're seeing people realize that we are living in the midst of a government that is has become in many ways unaccountable to the people. People are beginning to see that our government has and, and unelected bureaucracies attached to the government have been given powers over the people to make decisions that affect all of our lives. And we have very little uh, control over that. It's very difficult for us to rein that in. It's very difficult for us to bring accountability to that. And that's one of the things the Supreme Court pointed out is that the health department in the state does not have the unilateral authority to just shut businesses down. Absolutely not. So our text in Ecclesiastes says there's a time for war. There is even a time to kill. There's a time to fight. There's a time for Christian men to engage in physical conflict. And we understand that we are in a spiritual war, right? We are in a spiritual war. You are all soldiers. If you are a Christian, you are already engaged in a spiritual war. There is a war going on. That spiritual war, though, has very real physical dimensions and implications. As men, we are different and distinct from women. God created men as warriors. As a man, you are a warrior. If you do not see yourself as a warrior, then I would say your perception of yourself as a man is lacking. I'll say that again. Men, you are warriors. You were created to be warriors. And if you do not see yourself as a warrior, your perception of yourself as a man is lacking. We must live our lives, discipline our lives, so as, to be, so as to be prepared to protect our families and to protect our communities. This is a duty that we have as men. We cannot spiritualize those duties away. We cannot use the teachings of Jesus or the flowery language of Scripture and misinterpret it to provide some sort of covering for our cowardice and our failure to step up as men and be protectors in our families and in our communities. Now, I'm not going to go through a thorough study against pacifism. There are many resources available. This is one book that I would recommend and encourage if you want a book on it. It's called War, Four Views, Four Christian Views. Excellent book. Uh, Harold O.J. Brown and Arthur Holmes both give a good defense historically for the Christian justification for physical conflict, for war, for violence, for aggression, whatever terms you want to use. That There is a time for Christians to engage in physical conflict. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time uh, trying to refute pacifism. Pacifism has always been a minority view within the church. Christians have never entirely uh, ruled out violence in principle. We have cautioned against violence. We've cautioned against the abuses of war, the uh, unjust wars, and uh, we've and, and a lot of uh, ungodly violence that has permeated humanity. We've preached against those things stood against those things and called men to be peacemakers, called Christians to be peacemakers. But that does not negate the fact that there is a time when men must stand up and fight real evil. So we're going to assume that Christian men are biblically justified in using force to protect ourselves and our families. We also have resources on this topic on our website, mercyseat.net. You can find articles and resources available Um going through the history of Christian theology and practice on the topic. 
What I have bigger issue with and what I really want to dial in on is those who what I would call are functional pacifists. That's the nice way of saying it. The not so nice ways is to call it cowardice, cowardice. But functional pacifism is those who would say, yes, there's a time for war. They applaud our great military heroes and they applaud those who've laid their lives down in the past. But they themselves will never take such actions and actually formulate all sorts of all sorts of theological gymnastics to justify why it's okay that they don't ever have to do that. And so they're functional pacifists. Or if we want to be not so kind, we would say simply it's cowardice. And so I'd say scripture affirms plainly that human beings, men and women, have a duty and a right to protect themselves, even using force if necessary, period. That's a longstanding Christian position and Christian view. It's a basic moral intuition that I think is found supported and asserted in scripture over and over again. We see violence throughout the Bible. We see in the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, King David, all men of war, war was sanctioned, commanded, and even at times celebrated. Now, that is starkly absent from the New Testament. In the New Testament, we find a focus on the spiritual war, a focus on the gospel and the conversion of the souls. And so this is important because Christianity, we don't believe in conversion by the sword. We don't believe that we use force and violence to convert. The gospel is our primary means of fighting our spiritual war through the scripture, through God's word, through God's spirit. As we example the life of Christ, we build communities of believers that example the life of Christ that touches all areas of life. And we persuade. And the church has been persuasive for 2000 years in transforming nations, societies and civilizations. Amen. Some would say, well, there's nowhere where Jesus ever says that you should defend yourself using violence. Well, there's nowhere where Jesus ever says, you know, you shouldn't peel people's toenails off to torture them either. Uh, there's lots of things that aren't explicitly stated in the Bible, but the principles are there and are clear and assumed. And one of those principles that's clearly assumed that Jesus never denounces is that we have a right to defend ourselves and protect our families using force if necessary. Jesus, in fact, built a whip, went into the temple, flipped tables over, flipped men out of their chairs, and with a whip, drove them out of the temple. Jesus is, in fact, called a man of war who will take vengeance upon evildoers. Scripture actually goes so far as to say in the book of Revelations that we will wash our feet in the blood of the wicked. That's tough language. Probably figurative imagery. I don't know that we will literally be doing that, but regardless, that brutal imagery is employed in the New Testament. Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek. This is referring to insults. Turning the other cheek is not in context dealing with a fatal, violent attack against you or your family. Somebody smites you on your cheek. That's an insult. Okay, that what Jesus is saying is if you are insulted, that doesn't mean you go get a gun and shoot somebody. If you're insulted, it doesn't mean you fly off in a raging fit, uh, always seeking to defend yourself. We should be willing to endure persecution for our faith. We should be willing to endure ridicule for our faith. Right. This is what Jesus is speaking to when he says, turn the other cheek. Now, there's the passage, of course, where Jesus tells his disciples to go and buy swords and we, many of us use that and have used that uh, in defense of weapons. Now, that's an interesting passage when you read it, what Jesus says, because right after that, the disciples say, hey, we have two. And Jesus says, that's enough. And so we could debate what that all is about. Some would say that Jesus is saying, that's enough. No more weapons. 
which I don't think that's what it's saying. Others would say that it was referring to Jesus's whole thing about getting the swords and the money bags is all about what was about to happen was his arrest. It was all leading up to the fulfillment of the prophecies that he mentions about him being numbered amongst the transgressors and arrested. And a part of that was that they were to be armed as he was arrested. So anyway, that's a whole other verse that can be debated. It's probably not one of the stronger verses that I would use in defense of us being armed. But there are a lot of other passages that I think make it plain. So bottom line, men, we are called to be warriors. Pastors, you are called to be warriors. If you do not see yourself as a warrior, pastor, then you your perception of yourself as a pastor is lacking. Your duty is not to just heal the wounds of the abused. Your duty is to protect those from being abused. Understand that? Jesus did not turn a blind eye to injustice and abuse. He confronted the religious and the civil leaders of his day, as did the prophets that went before him, as did the, prophet, uh, the apostles who came after him. Jesus confronted injustice. He confronted injustice. We have a duty to confront injustice. And at times, if necessary, if it reaches the point, to use force. Now, the transforming message of the gospel is, of course, our first weapon. We must recognize that we are first and foremost in a spiritual battle, but we are in a battle. And so the church, I would say, is failing to equip men for physical conflict. The church is failing to equip men for physical conflict. We have raised a generation of soft, weak men, spiritually and physically, incapable of confronting the evil that spreads throughout our world. I said incapable of confronting the evil that spreads throughout our world. If you look at the history of the church, Christians, as I said, have confronted evil and injustice. And at times these evils are confronted and ended through the preaching of the gospel. And that's what we desire to persuade the aggressor, to persuade the oppressor, to to uh, persuade the abuser to cease from their injustice. And so we've seen throughout history where men are converted, leaders are converted and reform and nations are made. Justice is established. The sins of the past are repented of. And we seek that. We desire that. We work and labor to bring the gospel to all nations. And we've seen that time and time again as nations. You look at the history of the Vikings and the violence of the Viking world as they would rape and pillage the countrysides of England and, and Europe and uh, in, in, in Ireland and France, Germany, and the destruction that, that many of them wrought uh, uh, throughout Europe. And they were converted. Vikings were converted through the persuasive preaching of the gospel, through bold missionaries hazarding their lives, laying their lives down. Many of them were killed, were martyred to bring the gospel to the Vikings, and Vikings were converted. And we praise God for that. We should work for that. But there are times when, guess what? The oppressor does not convert and continues to slaughter and abuse and oppress. And what must happen then is there must be conflict. Those that those men that were oppressed by the Vikings, they actually had armies and they fought back against the Vikings and protected themselves from the Vikings, even while missionaries were going forward, seeking to convert the Vikings, bring it even into our world. Right. Slavery ended when men fought. Hitler and the Nazis bloody regime ended because men fought. Think of in other nations, the Rwandan genocide. How many of you know the history of the Rwandan genocide? 
horrific just a few decades ago where almost a million people were slaughtered in just several weeks by machetes across the land of Rwanda. And you know how it ended? This was a largely Christian nation. Many that were killed were huddled in churches and were slaughtered, raped and killed in their churches. It ended not by America and the West in the great Christian nations of the Western civilization coming to their aid in defense of our Christian brethren. No, our government leaders cowered, were pathetic, were disgraceful in their greed and their corruption. Nobody came to the defense of the Tutsi tribe <coughs> in Rwanda from the Western world. We pulled our people out. Europeans pulled their people out and left the Tutsis to die. The Rwandan genocide ended by the Tutsi people, the Christian people there, formulating militias in the southern part of the country, organizing themselves into militias, building armies, and providing a haven of protection that those in the other parts of the country could flee to, and they survived. And then they were able to put a stop to the massive slaughter. The Rwandan genocide ended because Christian men fought, prepared themselves and equipped themselves to fight. And this is our American heritage. How many of you know who Pastor Jonas Clark was? We're all indebted to Pastor Jonas Clark. You should know his name. Samuel Adams is probably a name that you do know. Samuel Adams was a great patriot from Boston, a city boy who came out to the countryside of Lexington. And Jonas Clark was the chief pastor, the, the most influential Christian leader in the little town of Lexington, a community of farmers. And Samuel Adams befriended Jonas Clark, had great respect for Jonas Clark. And he asked him, as the British were spreading across and throughout Boston, spreading tyranny in the city of Boston, he said, will the men of Lexington fight? And Jonas Clark said, yes, they will, for I have prepared them for this very thing. Here was a pastor in a small farming community who took the small farmers in his community and he was preparing them, training them to protect their freedoms and their liberties from an oppressive government. And the shot heard round the world that started the Revolutionary War, where our freedoms were fought and established, began in the church parking lot of Jonas Clark's church and he led his men onto the battlefield. Many of his men, many of his fellow Christian men died that day. And so that is how our freedoms were established in this nation. And God has had his hand on this nation despite our many sins and failures as a people. <coughs> this nation was birthed in the theological soil of Christianity. Our freedoms and our constitution, our bill of rights were birthed in the soil of Christianity. It was the impetus that gave us the spark to end slavery, sad as it was that we tolerated it for as long as we did. And I would say to you that many of the pastors today who sit silent in the face of the abuses and injustices and corruptions of our day today, who sit silent while 3,000 babies are murdered in their mother's womb throughout our nation, who sit silent while all these other evils are foisted upon us, while, 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 while football, football coaches are told they can't even pray at a football game, or they will be arrested or fined, or their properties seized. All the long chain of abuses we've seen and corruptions of our government and the pastors who sit silently today, guess what? They would have been silent in the days of slavery. You say, how do we tolerate 200 years of the most horrific abuse of black men and women in this country? Well, look at pastors today and the pastors who are silent today would be silent. Then the pastors who are saying, I don't want to talk about that, Jason. I agree with you, but I can't speak out publicly about it because there's people in my congregation who would be offended. And I don't want to offend the people in my congregation. I've got to minister to them. 
those men, those pastors would have sat and would have allowed slave owners to sit comfortably in their church. And they would not have spoken out against slavery. They would not have joined forces with the abolitionists because they would not have wanted to offend a tithe paying slave owner in their church. Sad. Peter Muhlenberg was a great pastor of the Reformation that you should all know about. I'm sorry, of the, the American Revo Revolution. Peter Muhlenberg <coughs> preached a fiery, passionate sermon, sermon justifying biblically the cause of war and independence. And he had his clerical black robe on as he preached a fiery sermon, inspiring the members of his congregation. At the end of the sermon, he threw his robe off and was dressed in his militia fatigues, picked up his musket and marched out to the battlefield. That's the kind of pastors that help build this country. And I tell you, we're raising a generation of weak and effeminate men. And that begins in the pulpits. Our pastors today are squandering our heritage for their own selfish gain. To maintain peace and comfort in the face of oppression and injustice. Pastors today love the freedoms that were purchased for them by other men's blood. They love their tax exemptions. They love their privileged place in society, but they are unwilling to fight for them. Unwilling to display the kind of courage that men in the past displayed in laying their lives down so they could have such a privileged place. Says John Stuart Mill said here, probably had pulpits in mind. He was not a Christian man. He said this war is an ugly thing, but it's not the ugliest of things. The decayed and degraded state of moral and patriotic feeling which thinks that nothing is worth a war is much worse a man who has nothing which he is willing to fight for nothing which he cares more about than he does his own personal safety security is a miserable creature who has no chance of being free unless made and kept so by the exertions of better men than himself john stuart mill it has taken great effort and conflict and courage from Christian men to right our wrongs from the past. Slavery would still exist today if men did not stand up and end it with force. Black men would still be in chains in our country if the Christian men then were parroting the Christian mantras that we hear today all around us from pulpits. The fact is there are real evil men who will not cease from their evil deeds, who must be met and confronted. First and foremost with the gospel, first and foremost with long-suffering and patience, first and foremost with all the spiritual tools at our disposal, but it reaches a point as a last resort where we must be willing to use force, and if we're going to use force, we must be prepared, equipped, and ready to do that, and it is our duty, amen, to do that. It is sad to say I've met many pastors who've told me that one of the primary reasons they picked that vocation is because they wanted to avoid having to work hard because <laughs> they wanted to have to avoid manual labor. It is sad to say that many, many men have gone into ministry, not because they were called by God to be shepherds, not because they were called by God to protect, not because they were called by God to lead as Christ led but because it was a comfortable vocation to pursue. That ought not be the case. And so it breaks my heart, it saddens me, and it disgusts me. It disgusts me that I see so many of my fellow pastors standing in silence in our world today.
And so I hope that many will listen. Some will listen to this and it will be a wake up call to stand up and be men. Some would say, well, we need to just trust in God and we need to pray. Yeah, we pray. And yes, we trust in God. But trusting in God is not an excuse for inaction. I trust in God to provide for my family. But I still get up every morning and go to work. Yeah. I put, have scars and calluses on my hands because I get up every day and I go to work. And I believe that I must work hard. And if I don't, I have no reason to trust that God is going to provide for my family. I trust in God, but that is not an excuse for inaction. I trust in God to provide for my family. And thus I obey him. Trusting in God entails a duty to develop our strengths mentally, physically, and spiritually. And we have a state of weakness with our men today. Some of it is our education system, which has conditioned young men to be passive. It stifles men's creativity and self-reliance. You look at what young men were doing 200 years ago in this country. The average young man, by 18 19, 20 years old, could build his own house, grow his own food, was married, raising a family, understood political theory and and theology, understood um, law and politics. We were a very well-educated nation of young men and women who understood how to be self-reliant. Now we have a generation that has been conditioned by public education to stand in line for 13 years, do what you're told, All the thinking is done for you. Memorize and regurgitate and pass the test and move on down the conveyor belt, the assembly line in the factory school. George Washington was homeschooled. Abe Lincoln was homeschooled. Benjamin Franklin was homeschooled. If you'll tolerate me going on a homeschool rant here for a moment. One of the best things that I can say about what's going on in our world today is that it's forcing the entire nation to homeschool. And for that, I'm thankful. I talked to many parents who said they are finding out that they actually enjoy after they got past the first couple of weeks. <laughs> they're actually beginning to enjoy their children. Their children are enjoying them and they enjoy the time with their children and they're learning and realizing that they can actually teach their kids. And their kids are learning and their kids being, enjoy being with them. And guess what? Children have a time to explore. How is a child going to explore and learn and develop their thinking abilities and their powers of thought and their, their skill and their talents if they're not given the opportunity to integrate and spend real quality, substantive time in the adult world? Locked away in a little classroom, isolated from the adult world for 13 years is the antithesis of real education. Who's going to teach your son how to run a business? A businessman, a successful businessman that he could spend time with, be around, learn from, or somebody who went to school for years and his his profession is sitting in a classroom teaching people. Not to knock teachers, but the fact is who's better equipped to teach your son to be a businessman or your daughter to be a businessman? Or a businesswoman, who's going to teach your children economics? In school, guess who becomes the dominant influence in your child's life? The peer group. It's not the teacher. It's not you. Eight hours a day, five days a week, the dominant influencer in your child's life is the peer group. What is a 15-year-old boy going to learn from other 15-year-old boys? What is a 15-year-old boy going to learn from other 15-year-old boys who are sitting home watching pornography, playing video games all day? who's allowed to be disrespectful, who's allowed to have all kind of attitude, who, who is allowed to, 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 to uh, you know, be, be an ignorant, disrespectful fool. What influence is that child going to have over your child? And that's the dominant peer group in your child's life. You know what George Washington was doing when he was 11 years old? Was it sitting in a classroom listening to a teacher teach him things that were irrelevant for his future adult life? 
He was making something of himself. He was a productive member of society, contributing to his family's wealth. He was a land surveyor for the state of Virginia, traveling through the countryside, surveying, making maps. 12, 13 years old, was doing these things. 14, was an officer in the military. Bought a plantation at 14, 15 years old and was running a plantation. Owning land, building his land, running businesses. Surviving in the wilderness on his own, 11, 12, 13 years old. You know how old the youngest Navy commander was in a U.S. battle in our history? 12. <laughs> he was on a ship at 11. He was on a ship at 11. 12 years old, David Farragut. 10, actually. Had to commandeer a ship in a battle. Successfully won a Navy battle. At 12 years old, running a ship because his older officers were killed. He was already by that age, well-equipped and trained to commandeer and to lead a Navy battle. At 12 years old. We don't let kids ride around on bicycles without safety helmets at 12 years old. They barely just got out of their car seat at 12 years old. And so we have emasculated men. In our nation. And I speak even of me. Right. We are soft compared to those who've gone before us. The things that they carved out, the things that they built in this nation, <coughs> the work, the discipline, the struggle and the willingness to fight. has been stripped from us. We've let other people, other professionals do it all for us. And we just stand in line, do what we're told as little cogs in the machinery of mass production and mass consumerism and mass consumption. You got to help us. We need a revival of masculinity in our nation. We need men who are willing to stand up and fight back and take their country back, take their families back. So we are seeing things right now in our lifetime that we've never seen with what's going on in our government. Two trillion dollar stimulus package was just passed. Now they're talking about a three trillion dollar stimulus package on the heels of it, which, of course, has all sorts of funding for all sorts of wickedness. We have a government that has already 22 trillion dollars of debt. And if you factor in the long term, uh, our long term debt, what we are accountable for with Medicare and Medicaid is somewhere around probably 60 or even 70 trillion dollars that our government has indebted you and me, our children and our grandchildren. And what do our government leaders do? They vote themselves pay raises. They vote themselves exorbitant pensions. They open the pathway for themselves to get into lobbying, cush lobbying jobs where they can become millionaires. They exempt themselves from the repercussions of the legislation they pass. We are living under tyrannical government leaders, period. We are many, many generations deep in a government in Washington, D.C., that is out of control, unconstitutional, and lawless in destroying our freedoms and our liberties. You look at what's going on in Michigan, our neighboring state. I have friends over there. My wife was born in Michigan. And just talked to her cousin. Of course, maybe you know about the barber who was told he couldn't open up his barber shop. He opened it anyway. And what did the governor do? Came and revoked his license. Thankfully, a group of the Michigan militia came and protected and defended him as well as local magistrates in his community. And they have opened his barbershop back up in defiance of the tyrannical governor. Praise God. Praise God. That's what needs to be happening all across our nation. Now, we should stop and ask ourselves, first of all, whoever authorized and gave the government the authority to demand that a barber has a license in the first place. Right. 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 
I mean, it's horrific that a governor is going to strip him of his license. He's in a county where there's almost zero face cases of anyone affected by COVID. There is no health crisis in a hundred mile radius of this man's barbershop. There is no health crisis, but a governor has told him he must shut his barbershop down and sacrifice his entire life's work for a political agenda. That is tyranny. And I'm thankful that men are standing up there with guns in defense of that man and that local magistrates and the sheriff, they are standing with them. But we ought to ask ourselves, how did they ever get that authority in the first place? They didn't just, this governor just didn't, didn't wake up one day and say, I've got this authority. We've been on a long stream of moving towards this for a long time where they have taken so many powers. They have no authority to tell a barber that you need a license. Who are they to say that? Why don't they come to us, fill out our paperwork, come bow before our, why don't they come register with us and see if we approve of the things that they're doing on a daily basis. Let's subject their daily activities to the people. Let's see if their daily activities measure up to our standards and requirements because they are sworn to represent us. They're not our overlords. I just had to go register a truck I just bought. I had to pay 350 bucks because they just doubled the titling fee. Who, who authorized our government in this state to double the fee that I have to pay to title a vehicle? Amen. To just buy a vehicle and have it in my name and then register it. Who passed those laws? Who approved that? Was it ever subjected to a vote of the people? Did the people of this state ever say, yes, we want to pay you $150 a year so I can drive my vehicle on the road? And if I sell it, I want you to take money from me, even though when it was originally purchased, taxes were already paid in the vehicle, but we're going to take them every single time the vehicle sells again. And how are you living your life and what are you doing with the money that you get in your little bureaucratic job? You're not locked down. You're not deemed non-essential. Though the vast majority of what you do is absolutely non-essential if you were to put it to a vote to most of the people that you are supposed to represent. Amen. It is tyranny. We are living under tyranny. This is the kind of thing that our founding fathers went and fought and bled and died for to preserve and give us freedom. And we are squandering it. We're allowing it to be stripped from us in our cowardice. And we, we, we rationalize it with all the worst kinds of spiritual excuse making. God help us. I know I'm going long. Like I said, I may need to break this into multiple parts because I'm only halfway through my notes. So I probably will. I want to say, if you, I'll say a few things on this. I've already mentioned that we need to be tempered. We need to be long suffering. We need to make sure that spiritually, first and foremost, we are walking close to the Lord. Our hearts are right with God, that spiritually we are in a good place with God. I'm not saying we go pick up guns and start shooting people when we ourselves have a life personally and spiritually in disarray. What I'm saying is we walk obediently with God and we walk into a mature relationship with God and we seek to be <laughs> Christ-like. That spiritual growth, maturity, and those spiritual duties and responsibilities lead us into conflict with our culture, with the world, and with the state. And so two arguments. Let me just say this and then I'll, I'll close because I don't want to keep going. I'll, we'll put this into a second part. Two arguments I want to respond to, two verses that are used commonly to shut down the idea that we ought to stand up and fight against the things that we're seeing today and even be willing to use force to do that, and that we ought to actually be training and preparing ourselves for this very purpose right now. One is Apostle Paul says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness in high places. How many are familiar with this verse of Scripture? We wrestle not against flesh and blood. And I've had many, many pastors tell me, I know there are people listening to this sermon who will say, 
Hey, Jason, we are not wrestling against flesh and blood, brother. We can't take up guns against our government. That's the ways of the world. You know, this type of conflict that you're speaking of, this type of political engagement you're speaking of is the ways of the world. It's wrestling against flesh and blood. We are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness in high places. Let me say this. They're perverting scripture. If you're going to take that verse to mean that we don't ever engage in physical force to accomplish a spiritual goal or achieve a spiritual victory. I'll say that again. You are perverting that scripture. If you think that that verse is teaching that we should never engage in physical force to accomplish a spiritual goal or achieve a spiritual victory. Listen, Paul was beaten, shipwrecked, nearly starved, imprisoned. Was he not wrestling against flesh and blood? The man who wrote that passage, was he not wrestling against flesh and blood? Was he not jailed and beaten? Did he not have to actually take action in defense of his own life? Was he not experiencing real physical hunger? Was it not a part of his spiritual mission to keep himself physically fed and to preserve his own life as much as laid within his power? When Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, he's teaching that our ultimate enemy is unseen spiritual power. That ultimately has to be met with unseen power from God. But that that battle manifests itself in the physical world because we are physical beings. And so being equipped to fight spiritually entails physical activity. Sharing the gospel with someone involves a physical activity. I have to get off the couch. I have to move my mouth. I have to actually care for my physical body. Concerned for the physical body of those with whom I'm sharing the gospel with. I have to go and speak into the physical ears of real human beings. Doing spiritual things necessitates doing physical things. We speak of a dichotomy between the physical and the spiritual often. But we shouldn't be just focusing the physical but upon the spiritual. But the fact is the better way to think of it more properly biblically is that all of life is spiritual. Spirituality encompasses the totality of the physical life. Everything that you do and are physically is spiritual. Understand that. Everything that you are and do physically is spiritual. We speak of a dichotomy and we speak of them in in, in contrasting ways when we're talking about things that go above and beyond the physical because the spiritual transcends the physical. It's not limited to the physical. So when we talk about things being physical versus spiritual or physical battles versus spiritual battles, There are spiritual things. The spiritual world transcends and goes beyond the physical world. But the physical world, the totality of all that we do physically is spiritual. Everything you do physically is a spiritual activity with spiritual implications and spiritual ramifications. People say, oh, so it's going to the bathroom, a physical activity. Uh, Yeah, it is. Talk to anybody who's had problems doing that. Okay, and you're going to find out that that can greatly impair your ability to do a whole lot of things that you would consider spiritual activities. You're not going to be able to preach the gospel If you don't actually have healthy functioning digestive system, if you're not eating the right proper things and getting nutrients into your body and caring for your physical body, you're not going to be able to do the kinds of spiritual activities that you're talking about. We have a handheld physical Bible. Men had to actually invent printing presses. Men actually had to copy scrolls and create parchment paper and papyrus to write down the Bible onto. So even the word of God in its written form that we have and read Okay, required physical activity, physical hardship, physical difficulty to preserve it and to put it into our language so we can sit and have it here. And so that I can read it with my physical eyeballs. And if I allow my eyeballs to be plucked out of my head or I don't take care of them, I go walk outside and stab myself accidentally with a pole. Guess what? I won't be able to read these pages on the Bible, will I? So all that we do physically is spiritual. 
Paul is not saying we wrestle against flesh and blood. Therefore, what you do physically doesn't matter. How absurd. So let's not draw a false dichotomy between the physical and spiritual. Let's not use that verse as an excuse for why I shouldn't have to fight. For why I don't have to do my duty in laying down my life in the protection of others. That's an excuse. Oh, I wrestle against flesh and blood. Oh, so you can sit in your couch and pray while other men are bleeding and dying for your freedoms, for your family, for your children's future. Even as Paul says this, he says we need to discipline ourselves for godliness. And he says bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. Having the promise of the life that now is and of that is which is to come. Some would say, therefore, preparing yourself for physical activity, physically training, is uh, is not this is not godliness. It's not the pursuit of godliness. Well, that's not what Paul is teaching in this verse either. Bodily exercise profits a little, if done solely for its own purposes. If all you're doing is is physically training just to, so you can say, well, look at my body, I'm physically fit. Well, yeah, that's a vain activity that does does not is not going to bear fruit eternally. Paul says godliness is profitable for all things. Why? Because it has a promise of the life that it now is and that which is to come. Godliness. <coughs> Developing godly character, the pursuit of godly uh, uh, fruit in your life, cultivating a deep relationship with God and the fruit of that has positive blessings now in the physical world and in eternal. But guess what? Uh, Physical discipline, physical activities that are done for an eternal purpose, that are done for godly purposes, will bear an eternal reward. Have an eternal work. The more equipped and prepared you are physically to protect your family, the more prepared you are physically to go and preach the gospel. I know men that can't go out and preach and do ministry in the streets for a long day because they're physically unhealthy. Because they've allowed their bodies to become obese and out of shape. And they retire early from the mission field. Okay, so bodily exercise does profit eternally when done for an eternal purpose. Which if your goal is to fulfill your duty and calling before God to be a man who protects those around you, who fights evil and who brings the gospel into hard territory and terrain. As men have done, as the Apostle Paul did as an example, that requires, I can guarantee you, Paul was in good physical condition. He wasn't just fasting and praying as important as those things are. And we should be fasting and praying. He was engaged, I'm sure. He was physically fit. Jesus, the carpenter, I'm sure, was very physically fit. So big part of spiritual growth, to summarize, a big part of spiritual growth is doing physical things. Even as I discipline myself spiritually, studying scripture, purging sin, pride, greed, greed, lust, laziness, and developing godly character, I'm also developing strength and wisdom, which includes physical discipline. Eating well, exercise, physical fitness, mental toughness, perseverance, willingness to suffer physical pain and endure hardship. I could speak for a long time about that. How many men in our day calculate their careers based on what's easy and comfortable? If I could say something to you, young men, and you're thinking about a career, don't pick something that's easy and comfortable and soft. I know men who are happy being cashiers at a gas station. I'm not picking on you, but I'm saying if you're a young man looking at your career in front of you, pick something that's challenging. Pick, pick something that's going to bring out your greatest gifts and your greatest attributes. It's going to cause you to excel and bring out the greatness that God has put inside of you so you can accomplish great things. There's nothing that's been ever great accomplished in our world that didn't require difficulty and hardship and, 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 uh, and strength. 
So pursue a career that's going to bring those things out of you, to bring those gifts out of you. Don't look for an easy, comfortable job. Amen. Second thing, and I'll probably stop here because I've been going for a long time. And we'll just leave this for the next sermon. Next verse is where Jesus, as he's before Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my servants would fight. Okay, we're going to we'll look at that and uh, a next another sermon. So I want to answer that verse and go through that verse. And there's a lot of study you can do on that passage where Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. A lot we could say about that. Another verse that's very, very twisted, very used inappropriately to justify all sorts of things. So um, let me just close with this and uh, I'll scale this down. I just want to say, are you prepared for physical conflict? The old saying is those who fail to plan, plan to fail. What happens if the dollar collapses? What happens if we have a global depression? We have looting and rioting in our streets. Communication is shut down. Cell towers go down. Power grids fail. What happens if the mass rioting and looting shuts down the, 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 the highways and the food shipment opportunities are shut down? What happens if supply is cut off? Interstate commerce breaks down. How will you get food to your family? How will you protect your family? What are you going to do? Lots of things like this could happen. You look at Germany in the 1930s. Many were unprepared. You look at Eastern Europe after World War II when the communists swept in. Many were unprepared and they lived under horrific devastation. You look at Russia throughout the 20th century living under communism where men were routinely, pastors were routinely hauled off to the gulags and tortured and imprisoned for decades. You say it can never happen here. Well, it's happened in half the world just in the last century. It's happening in large parts of the world right now. It can happen here. And so are we prepared? Many wouldn't think of not having insurance. Well, this is more important than insurance. This is real insurance. Are you prepared? Are you prepared for economic collapse, for societal collapse? We have an, we live in a nation that is in crisis on many, many levels. The moral and spiritual breakdown, the encroachment of our government powers, the economic irrationality. We are living in a nation with crises on the horizon. And we are just seeing the tip of the iceberg with what has awoken people just in these last couple months with this COVID-19. And so I want to say we need to get prepared as Christians, as churches, as Christian communities. We need to be networking. We need to be formulating action plans. We need to be training. We need to have food and the means of producing food. We need to have the means of communicating with each other short and long term distance. We need to have the means of protecting ourselves and defending ourselves. We need to be training and being trained at how to do that. We need to have plans of action in place should these things shut down, should local government shut down, break down, should there be a civil war. How many know that a civil war looms in the horizon of this nation right now? The polarization, the anger, the hatred, read people's comments. There are people that hate each other and are willing to kill each other right now on both sides of the liberal and conservative spectrum. Okay, and that's going to be an ugly, disgusting thing. I don't know what's going to happen with our November elections. It's possible we could see some type of coup. There's all kinds of things that have happened historically and there's all kind of things that could happen and so what i'm saying is from little things to big things i'm talking about big things right now we need to be prepared we need to take seriously our duties prepare ourselves and pastors and leaders need to be leading that charge we need to be networking we need to be meeting with our local government officials our sheriffs and talking to them about plans of preparedness what do we do 
you know, in the South where they have hurricanes, of course, this stuff is more readily talked about. People have action plans, preparedness plans for a hurricane. Uh, what do we have? What does our community have? What does your congregation have? What do we have? We need to build these things. And so I'm, I'm, I'm starting that conversation. And uh, a lot of thoughts I could share about it, but I've talked for a long time. And so I'm going to end the sermon now, but I'll leave you with those thoughts. Let's have that conversation. And we'll pick up here and uh, on these topics and, and flesh these out more. If you have some comments, things you don't understand or questions you'd like to ask about what I've said, please share them in the comments below. And uh, I just want to close this in prayer. Thank you for listening. And let's pray for our nation. Let's pray for the church. Let's pray for ourselves. And uh, please join me. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day, Lord. I, I pray that you would awaken your people, God. Our hearts are humbled. Our hearts are broken, God. We speak of these things, God, with broken and heavy hearts. Lord, we see the devastation. We see... Uh, what is being done even to the youth of this nation is the, uh, this mass seduction from the entertainment industry is being unleashed <coughs> upon them. We see the failure of education. We see that uh, there there is a suffocation. Hands are, are gripping the necks of our children and suffocating them, God. And, and I pray that you give us the strength, the wisdom, the guidance to know how to act, what to do, and how we can uh, advance both your kingdom and be kingdom-minded and walk closely with you in our own personal lives as, as godly men and women, but also in fulfilling our broader civil duties, Father, to be protectors, to be providers, to be spiritual leaders. And Father, I pray you give us wisdom. Wake your people up, God, I pray. Wake them up. Use what is happening even now to open the eyes of men and women across this nation to stand up and to fight. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Wonderful. Wonderful. All right. Yeah, this is a seven-minute oh, You need to finish it.